Welcome to the Joseph Carlson Show. Today, we're going to be talking about three of the biggest reasons that I see investors losing money. Now, these aren't technical reasons, so it's not like the type of investments you pick, but these are behavioral reasons. A lot of different things that investors do that cause them to lose money. We'll be going over all three of them, and I'll explain why I think they're so dangerous and how to avoid them. Also, a lot of news to cover. We have Disney having its dividend safety score downgraded by Simply Safe Dividends. I'll be talking about what that means. We have the CEO of AT&T. He's stepping down. I'll be explaining why I think that's good news for anybody that owns AT&T. We have Kevin O'Leary, the Shark Tank investor guy. He reveals how many of his Shark Tank companies he thinks are going to go out of business. So we'll be looking at that. And we have Kyle Bass, a hedge fund manager, explaining why he thinks that retail investors are going to get wiped out in oil and which oil stocks are safe to pick at this point, which ones will come out on top. So we'll be going over all of this as well as portfolio updates, emails and questions, lots of interesting subjects. So we have a lot to get to. Okay, now before jumping into all of that, I want to talk about something else first. The channel here on YouTube has reached 100,000 subscribers. So it's actually a little bit past that now, but we broke that landmark of 100,000. So obviously that is a remarkably huge number, 100,000. That's a lot of people, when you really think about that, that has clicked the subscribe button. What I wanted to do was take a look at one of the first videos that I have done on this channel and highlight just one part of it here. This is from episode four. So this was February 22nd of 2019, a bit over a year ago. I'll go ahead and just highlight this one part of it. This channel had like 70, uh, over 70 subscribers in just the past week. So pretty incredible growth there. So I appreciate you guys that are going out and spreading it and telling your friends and family about it. Um, getting people into investing is a, is a great thing. Here I am in this video, February 22nd, episode four, and I'm thanking everybody for 70 subscribers in a week. So that shows you what 100,000 means is, you know, I'm, I'm looking back one year, it hasn't really been that long. And I am really thankful for those 70 subscribers in just like I am for 70 now. So you might not think it makes a big deal when you hit the subscribe button, but it really does have an impact. I appreciate everybody that shares the channel, everybody that's been supportive, everybody that writes emails and questions, good or bad criticisms or likes, anything like that. I think it's all fun, all interesting. So I just wanted to highlight that. I appreciate everybody. I look forward to making the next 100,000 subscribers, I hope that I come out with better content than the last 100,000. So that's the goal, to create something fun to look forward to during our busy days. Really, the goal of this channel all along has been to create real content. Uh, I noticed a trend when I first started off with YouTube was that most of the financial content, not everybody, so there might have been some exceptions, but most of the content out there I thought was behind this veil, behind this cloud of you, you can't really see through it. You hear them talk about finance, you hear them talk about investing, but it's rare for people to show their portfolio, to show their actual financial decisions. They might show it once in a while when something turns out good. They might invest in 10 companies and show you the one that they made money on. But to have somebody show you a completely holistic view of everything that they invest in week by week without skipping times and not showing you investments that don't turn out bad. When they show you everything, I think that that was an interesting subject. So I thought that I would do that with this series, create something where you're seeing a primary investment account, not some secondary fun account that I really have my finances elsewhere, that I really have my savings elsewhere, but this is just fun money. That's not what this is. It's real. The money is real. $83,000 is a lot of money. And I have that invested in these companies. The reason that I pick these companies are not to get the most clicks. They're not to 
uh, garner viewership or anything like that. It's companies that I think I want to own. That's the reason that I buy them. So this has been the goal of the channel overall is to create content that I think is real in the realm of finance that's also interesting and entertaining and all of that stuff. So so that's what I plan on continuing to do. Now, one more thing I have to mention before jumping into the main subject is I did my previous episode on stock buybacks. It was called The Total Abuse of Stock Buybacks. The focus of the video was to highlight the way that stock buybacks as a tool can be abused by management. So if you haven't watched that, I go into detail on the different ways that stock buybacks are being abused by executives in order to get large bonuses uh, and problems with incentives. Now, I did get a lot of emails that the video was one-sided. I'd got messages and emails that way. So I wanted to read through one of those emails. This one's from Doc. He says, Joseph, I saw your episode on buybacks and I agree with most everything you said. However, I also think your presentation may be a bit one-sided. There are benefits to shareholders from buybacks and there can be issues with dividends. Share buybacks are essentially the opposite of issuing additional common shares. Additional shares dilute the shares held and tend to decrease earnings per share and ROI. Buybacks tend to increase those metrics. As it turns out, shareholders seem to complain about both. In my view, the dilution could be more damaging to the shareholder than buybacks. Also, if the buyback has the desired effect, say, increasing the value of the shares by the amount of a dividend, then the shareholder gets the advantage of not having to pay taxes on the increased value uh, that he she sells the shares. While it is certainly true that management can benefit from buybacks with increased bonuses, etc., I'm not convinced that this is usually the primary reason for buybacks. Also, keep in mind that companies often pay dividends that they can't afford to keep the stock price higher, which also can benefit management. As with everything else, the investor must evaluate each company individually, judging the quality of management along with the balance sheet and other metrics. Good management might use buybacks or dividends or both as the situation requires. Bad management might use either as well. Now, I wanted to highlight this email because I agree with everything that Doc says here. I think that he's spot on. I would get annoyed if a company was diluting my equity by constantly issuing new shares. So that's true. Uh, And I don't think that there's anything inherently bad about stock buybacks. That wasn't the point of the video. It was the abuse of stock buybacks. So stock buybacks in and of themselves there's nothing inherently wrong with them. It's just a a mechanism. It's a way for companies to buy back their own shares. The abuse of stock buybacks is what I think is bad. The way that executives abuse stock buybacks to enrich themselves. So we got to separate those two. The stock buyback in and of itself, I don't think is a problem. I think it's a problem with the way that incentive structures and bonuses are done in corporate America. Oftentimes, executive compensation in the US is linked to things like earnings per share, linked to things like stock price, which you can have a direct effect by removing shares out of the pool. If a company removes shares out of the pool, there's less of them, which anytime there's less of something, it makes that thing more valuable. So that is just a really simple way for executives to accomplish something, and it might cloud out better decisions for them to do with that money. They could reinvest it into research and development. They could expand and do capital expenditure. They can do a lot of different things with that money other than trying to artificially increase the price of shares. So... That's the issue I see with it. It's not an issue with the buyback. It's an issue with the compensation structure. And I agree that there's a lot of companies that aren't abusing buybacks. Apple's one of them. I don't think Tim Cook is unlocking special compensation for himself or using it as a chance to cash out. He just thinks it's a really good way to allocate money right now. So Apple's an example of a company that's done it right. IBM is an example of a company that's done it wrong, that's clearly trying to use it to keep the stock price up. I do think there's really distinct differences between dividends and buybacks. 
dividends don't remove shares outstanding and automatically increase the price of the share. So there are some differences there. But I do agree with you here. For people that watched the previous episode, the message of it is not that share buybacks are bad. It's that they are often abused and it's a problem with incentive structures. If we changed incentive structures to be linked to things like revenue growth, uh, net income growth, anything like that, that would be a way that you really couldn't use share buybacks or dividends or anything else to accomplish that. The The goal would be to grow the company, which would be in line with the long-term good of the company. So they could change incentive structures a little bit. Okay, now moving on from that, uh, I want to go into the three reasons that investors lose money. I'll be listing them off from the least severe to the most severe. So let's go ahead and look at this graph here first. This is from JP Morgan. They look back 20 years and they look at different type of investments and see the average return annualized over those 20 years. Uh, If we go from left to right, you can see that REITs have done really well over the past 20 years, aside from like the past two months. So the coronavirus has brought up some extremely specific, unique challenges for REITs with most of them being closed. So we have REITs, they're returning like 11.6%. We have gold doing good over the past 20 years. The S&P 500 has done good. And it goes on and on. The 60-40 portfolio has done well. And way over there to the very right, in orange, the worst performing thing that they looked at was the average investor. 1.9% year-over-year returns over the past 20 years. 1.9%. Just to put that in contrast, you can get that with like short-term treasuries. There's high-yield savings accounts that are close to that. There's CDs that you could have bought 20 years ago that yield better than that. And those are certificates of deposit. They're insured. So the average investor is getting returns similar to a savings account. And that's putting their money at great risk in the stock market, buying companies. Whereas pretty much everything else, just the basic market returns about three times as much. So not even close. When you look at a 6% return over 20 years to a 2% return over 20 years, the difference is drastic. So the things that I'm highlighting are three of the reasons I believe that average investors are in that category, that they're earning 1.9%. I believe that if people avoided these things, that they would earn on par with the market. So let's go ahead and look at the first one here. And number one, we have separation of roles. This is a simple one, but I see a lot of people having trouble with this. This means to separate the roles of your savings account and your personal finances from your investment account. They're not the same. Your investment account is not an extension of your savings. You need to separate those two different roles. If you look at this graph right here, this is uh, data that shows since the coronavirus, um, the economic impact of it. If we look at this, it goes week by week and you can see the jobless claims. The initial jobless claims, you can barely see them. They're around 225,000 around 222,000. So they're always around 200,000. And then we get to when we have the quarantine right here, 2,899,000. And then the ongoing unemployment claims, it's called the continuing unemployment claims that goes up to 3,396,000. That's how many people were looking for work the first week. And then it goes up 14 million people, 18 million people, 20 million people. Right now it stands at 24 million people unemployed. 24 million is a lot of people unemployed. So uh, this number goes up. And the reason I bring this up is because when you don't have a separation of roles, what do you think these people are doing if they have investment accounts and they lose their jobs? If they don't have any type of savings account, they don't have money anywhere else, they need money, they need liquidity. What do you think they have to do with their portfolios? 
a lot of them are going to be tapping into their portfolios. Now, what's the problem with using your portfolio as an extended savings account? Well, let's go ahead and look at this here. The stock market goes down as the unemployment rate goes up. So when all these people are losing jobs, the stock market has been down 25% of where it was. So that's not exactly the optimal time to sell out of your investment account, to be put in a situation where now that you don't have a lot of savings, but you have investments, you have to cash in on your investments. Yes, you can use this money as an extended savings account. It's there if you have an emergency. But I think that one of the main reasons people lose money in the stock market is because they don't have a separation of roles. They don't have enough savings. So if stuff like this happens where they lose their job, they have to cash into their portfolio. And beyond that, if they have really risky investments and they don't have any type of bonds or treasury bonds, they might not have anything good to cash out of. So that can be something that can severely diminish your returns, leaving you in that category where you have the 2% returns over a long period of time. So the way to avoid running into this problem of having to cash out of your portfolio when there's economic turmoil going on is to have a savings. Keep that aside outside of your portfolio. Have some money in cash in a savings account that's for your family. Not money for your portfolio, but money for your family in case anything happens. So I do the same thing. I put a lot of money in here. I fund it as much as I can, but I do have a savings so that if something went wrong with my job or income or something like that, we would be okay and I wouldn't have to cash out of the portfolio to fund our lifestyle. So keep that in mind when you're funding your portfolio. The second thing is to know what you own. I have probably lost money with this one, not knowing what I own. One of the companies I'm down, I believe the most in was in real estate. And it's NRZ, New Residential Investment. Now, what Know What You Own means is that you understand the investment that you're buying. You understand the risks. You understand the business, what they sell, how they make money. And you could explain it to a child. So if you took Disney, for example, I could explain all the various ways that company makes money through their cruise lines, through their merchandise, through their production studios, through their parks. It's a business I feel like I understand on a basic fundamental level. Now take New Residential Investment Corp. Here's a company I bought into that I understand on a theoretical level, some of how it runs, but when you actually try to read about this company and how it makes money, it's very complex. The company makes money in four ways, the excess mortgage service rights, the overflow cash flows derived from servicing of home mortgages that banks originate, the service advances providing reimbursement cash payments to the mortgage originator when the mortgage holder fails to pay one time, the non-agency residential mortgage-backed securities, high-risk mortgage-backed securities that represent the future cash flow streams of mortgage payments, okay, associated call rights, new residential can call in a loan early when the aggregate loan value is greater than the sum of par on the loans, minus any discount from acquired bonds plus expenses related to such exercise. This is what I mean. Do I really know what I own here? Do I really have a, a full understanding of how this business works, how they make money? Is it easy and simple to understand? I don't think so. I think it's a very complex business. I don't exactly know the different ways that they make money or the extent of risk in it. So this is a company that I purchased that I probably shouldn't have because I didn't understand the business model to the level that I should. And if you're going to spend money on a company, you should know what you own. And like I mentioned before, this company has been one of my biggest losers. I'm down $1,500 on it. And I think it's because I didn't follow that rule. I didn't really understand what I purchased or the extent of the risk to it. So I'm going to try to follow that rule for now on. And number three, we have loss aversion. This one I really think should be number one. I should have reverse ordered this because I think loss aversion is probably the number one way that investors really end up losing money. It's not by poor investment choices. I think most of the time people can pick 
decent things to invest in. A lot of people that invest in just the stock market lose money. In fact, a lot of people that invested in Peter Lynch's Magellan Fund lost money, even though it doubled the market average for 12 years straight. The way that they lost money is because behavioral reasons. They bought in when things were high and they sold out when things are low. Loss aversion is a cognitive bias. So this is a psychological thing that we have. It pretty much on a basic level means that the pain we get from losses is far greater than the pleasure we get from gains. So making $1,000 doesn't feel as pleasurable, as painful as it does to lose $1,000. And there's a lot of studies that have seemed to validate this. It comes down to our wiring. As humans, we're wired to avoid losses. Avoiding losses is the big thing that our brains tell us to do. And the issues that has is investing is volatile. The stock market goes down and up drastically. If you're wired to avoid losses, that any type of loss sends off these alarm signals in your head, that this is really bad, that you're doing something wrong. You have that in your head. It's part of your psychology to be alerted when you're having losses and to feel that pain from it, to feel that displeasure from it. Then you see your portfolio enter into the red because we have something like the coronavirus, we have economic cycles, we have a recession. Those things don't go well. It causes people to get in very stressful situations and that loss aversion kicks in there. Loss aversion can make you do a a number of bad financial decisions. One of them, it says here, the overwhelming fear can cause investors to behave irrationally and make bad decisions, such as holding on to a stock for too long or for too little of time. Pretty much if you know an investment is a really poor investment, but you have loss aversion, you really don't want to realize the loss in it. You don't want to sell. So despite your knowledge of this being a bad investment and having bad future prospects, you still choose to hold on to it. You're suffering from loss aversion. You simply do not want to give up on an investment because you have loss aversion. Likewise, as soon as you're in the green on a good investment, as soon as you've made some money, you want to take that. You want to realize that gain. So you sell out of the stock and you realize that gain. That can also be a form of loss aversion. You're not wanting to have that potentially go back down. So despite the future outlook of that company continuing to be good and it continuing to grow in value, you sell out just because you don't want to have a chance of it going back down in value. It also mentions here that loss aversion can get so strong that it can lead to something called negativity bias. In such cases, investors put more weight on bad news than on good news, causing them to miss out on bull markets for fear that it will reverse course and panic when the market sells off. I definitely see that happening as well. Uh, Investors seem to seek out what news to form the reality that they want to be. If they want things to be optimistic, they'll look for optimistic news. If they have loss aversion, oftentimes they will look at negative news and they'll form the reality based solely around the negative news. It's actually really difficult to form a holistic view at the news. I would say if I lean on one side, I definitely lean more on the optimistic side. I invest, I put money in my portfolio. I don't worry too much about the future. So I don't focus overly on negative news, even though I might read it every single day. So I see investors struggle with these things. We're all human. We all have these different biases and things that we need to control for. And I see these ones in particular stand out. A lot of people are investing money that doesn't have any business being invested. It's money they need for their immediate future. They're using the stock market as a savings account. You can't do that. The stock market can go down and up really quickly. So don't invest money that you need for a savings account. The second thing is something that I said myself that I've suffered from. Buying companies that I don't fully understand the business model, that I know it on an abstract view, but the business is very complex. I don't exactly know what I'm buying. I really have no business doing that. You should focus on buying things that you understand. And then loss aversion, I think, is the most 
difficult one to identify, one that really is tough to deal with. I get people that will email me and they will outright tell me that they invested in a bad company and it looks like the future prospects are bad. But they will say, but I plan on holding on to it anyway, just at the chance that it will go up in value. So those are difficult situations to look at. Are you holding on to that company because you think there's a real legitimate chance that it will regain in value? Or are you holding on to it because you just don't want to realize a loss? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Even if it's painful, you have to try to make the smartest financial decision there. Now, of course, these are things that I struggle with as well. Everybody does. If you're a human, you have these certain psychological behaviors. The one that I think that I have down is I don't invest money that I need. So I'm not putting money into my portfolio that I'm going to need in the next year. I'm in this for the very long run. For the next 20 years, if the stock market drops down in the next six months, I really don't think it will be that difficult for me to stay invested. One of them that I am trying to do and change around in my portfolio is make a stronger focus on knowing what I own. I'm trying to move out of companies that I don't really understand their business model quite as much, like the energy sector. You can see I've lowered that down a little bit. Industrials are really complex companies. They have a lot of moving parts. I'm bumping up tech, even though these are a low starting dividend yield. I feel like I have a better understanding of the companies overall. Having a background in technology, I feel like I can look at the companies and see a better grasp on their future prospects. So I'm trying to put more weight into this. In real estate, I'm moving out of mortgage REITs. I don't understand it. It's too confusing. Maybe there's some people that have a really good grasp on the extent of the risks with mortgage REITs, but I feel a lot more comfortable with just your basic equity REITs like Realty Income Corp. I understand that business model. It's a lot more straightforward. So I'm shifting from mortgage REITs back into equity REITs. And then most of my other companies, I feel like they're very straightforward. So consumer, I have a lot of basic companies, Pepsi, Disney, Comcast, and Costco. Really basic business models, well-known companies. So I feel fine building up these holdings. So I have made some changes to the overall portfolio allocation. I continue to sell out of some bonds, put that money into tech and to other industries. Uh, I've changed things around a little bit. There's a link in the description of this video if you'd like to look at the updated portfolio. So you can go into that and click into each holding. Overall, my portfolio, even with bumping up my tech pie to 15% of my portfolio, it still has an overall 3.8% starting dividend yield. So that's much higher than the market average. I think it's a good yield. I try to keep it around 3.7 to 4.3. That's typically the sweet spot of where I like the starting yield to be, but that fluctuates a lot. If the market goes down, this dividend yield will go up a bit. So that's it overall. I turn back on auto invest. Money's just going to flow into the portfolio. In the past 30 days, I've made almost $300 in dividends, gained back 7,500 bucks. Who knows what the next month will be, but I'll continue to put money in and build up these holdings. Moving on, let's get to some news. We have AT&T's CEO, Randall Stevenson, retiring. The question is, what do I think about this? Good news or bad news? Uh, overall, I have to judge him based off his performance, and I don't think it's a bad thing for investors that he's retiring. He seems like a nice guy. You know, I don't have any issues with him, but I have to judge him based off his performance as a CEO. When he was over AT&T, they purchased DirecTV at the top of consumers buying landlines like that. Now they're all switched to streaming, and DirecTV is worth probably one-third of the price that he purchased it at. That's not exactly a killer acquisition there. To have an investment you buy, go down 70%. That's one of them. He also tried to merge with T-Mobile, and they wrote in all these different things. That if the merger didn't go through, they'd have to pay T-Mobile all this different money. They pretty much helped build up T-Mobile, which is now one of their biggest competitors. So that was something also not great that happened under his leadership. 
The deal that he did buying Time Warner, I think was the best one that he did. I don't think it was amazing, but I don't think it was bad. He bought a valuable asset that yes, they're a telecom company. They have access to lots of customers. So maybe they can take Time Warner and use them together, right? They can have some synergy there. I don't know how it's going to work out, but it wasn't a terrible purchase. So we'll give it one out of three, not a great record. If you want a record of great acquisitions, go over to Bob Iger. The person that's replacing him is John Stanky, somebody that's been with the company for a while. He's going to be the new CEO, and he has his main focus turned towards media and entertainment. That's the side of the company that he's focused on growing. I think that's what they should be focused on. So the media portion with HBO, I think, is a big part of the growth plans. They're planning to launch HBO Max next month. So they're going to launch that. We'll see what the initial numbers are like, how many new subscribers they get, if it will grow to be a big service that replaces their losses in DirecTV and the consumer wireline business segment of it. We'll see how it does. It's supposed to be HBO plus all their other content. So we'll see what they're able to do with that. I think a lot of people will just have both services. They'll have Netflix or HBO, or they'll do the thing where they switch off from one service to the other. So we'll probably see some of that going on. Moving on, we have new research from Simply Safe Dividends on the company Disney. They've downgraded it to a status of unsafe, meaning the dividend and the likelihood that Disney is going to continue to pay it is very unknown at this point. It's unsafe. There's a good chance they could suspend the dividend. Uh, I've read through this. I, I don't think that this is a problem in the grand scheme of things. When we look at Disney, most of their stuff is shut down right now. Their parks are closed. Cruise lines are shut down. The movie theaters are closed where they make a lot of their money. So a lot of their business is simply shut down right now. Luckily, they're one of the better capitalized businesses. But the decision comes down to whether they want to keep paying a dividend when they're losing millions of dollars a day. That's the decision. Management will look at this and say, we're losing millions of dollars every single day that we have all of our stuff closed down. And do we want to be paying out shareholders during that? I actually would not mind it at all if Disney suspended their dividend until this gets figured out, until their parks get opened back up. I like dividends. I'm a dividend investor, but I like companies to be earning revenue to pay the dividend. If everything's closed and they're not earning any money, I don't like them dispersing money to me because that means the dividend is unsustainable until things change. So they'll make that decision. There's a high likelihood they could suspend the dividend. I don't think that's any reason to necessarily sell the company unless you really have a negative long-term outlook on it. I think that in time, in some unknowable amount of time, I think within the next couple of years, the parks will start to open back up and Disney will start to make money again and they'll reinstate their dividend if they do cut it. So I'm saying that in advance, they haven't cut the dividend yet, but if they do, I'm probably not going to be selling it based off of that. Okay, now I want to play this clip. It's of Kevin O'Leary. He's one of the Shark Tank investors that sits there and he will ask them questions, invest in the different companies. Uh, I wanted to do this to illustrate the effects that this shutdown is having on small businesses. So in my portfolio on M1, I've mostly publicly traded large cap companies, meaning they're worth like over $10 billion. Those are the The smaller companies I own are worth only a couple billion dollars, but most of the companies I own shares in are worth tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions, if not trillions. I have Microsoft and Apple in there, these mega cap companies. So the companies I'm investing in, most of them are open doing business. There's some in real estate that they have different tenants that are closed, but most of the companies I own are still operating. Now, Kevin O'Leary has a portfolio of these small businesses that are really just like mom and pop startup type of businesses. And he goes over how many of them will probably go out of business. You know, well, if I have a pretty broad portfolio across all sectors in almost every state now, 
And I would say just on a statistical basis, one third are probably going to have to go to zero. They just can't survive no revenue at all. One third. One third of the 51 businesses he's invested in, he thinks will go to zero as a result of this shutdown. So my guess is that most of them are in the, the type of uh, business that's not essential, right? The ones that are shut down right now. He mentions them not being able to survive zero revenue. The other ones he says are pivoting, that they're getting their paycheck protection loan, all that stuff that they might survive from this. But just thinking about one third of those businesses going to zero is pretty crazy. Now, I know a lot of people, they hear news like that. How's the S&P 500 down 16% from its all-time highs? How does that make sense when you get this terrible economic news for small businesses, but yet the S&P 500 is still doing pretty well? It's only down 16%. I think a lot of this comes down to the fact that the shutdown has mostly targeted small companies. Those are the ones that are usually not having their doors open. Companies like Costco and Walmart, Amazon and Apple, they're fully functional. They're making money. But the mom and pop shops are the ones being shut down right now. We have in the S&P 500, it's heavily weighted towards just a couple companies that make up a huge portion of that index. Look at Microsoft. That company alone makes up 5.6% of the S&P 500. One company. And Microsoft is a software company, so it's doing fine during this shutdown. It can still conduct business. Apple makes up 4.9%. Amazon makes up 4.3%. Just between those three companies, we have like 15% of the entire S&P 500. And you see the same type of thing going down. The top 10 companies alone make up like over 20% of the S&P 500. So that's 10 companies controlling a fifth of the S&P 500's performance. That's a substantially swayed weighting towards these companies. So when you see this, realize that this is a handful of companies that are heavily determining the outcome of this performance. When you look at the broader economy, there's a lot more going on. There's all these small businesses that don't have the same connections. They can't conduct business. They don't have lawyers to be able to get these loans and and navigate them. A lot of them don't know how. So things are really messy. And the stock market isn't really fully reflecting what's going on with the broader economy. Now, I get a lot of questions about oil, what's going on with it. Most people know that there's this battle between the Saudis and the Russia. Neither of them will turn off production, which is flooding the market with oil, causing an oversupply while we have a pandemic and we don't have a lot of demand. Now, I do get questions about oil. It's a hot topic. Should I invest in this company? Should I invest in this company? Kyle Bass has an opinion on this. He's a hedge fund manager, and I agree fully with his opinion on it. We start to roll and open our economy going forward. I think it makes sense that the big balance sheet, best, uh, most well-heeled energy companies, they're going to be not only the survivors, they're going to be the winners um, over time. The highly levered, smaller companies, uh, that weren't hedged are going to go away. And this is, this is a natural process uh, of what happens when you go from a, a boom to a bust. He thinks the companies to own are the ones that are the biggest, that have the best balance sheets, and can weather a very long storm of having uh, low prices for oil. Those are the companies he thinks will not only survive, but they'll come out on top. I own ExxonMobil and Chevron specifically for that reason. They're the two companies I think have the strongest balance sheet. The ones that he says that investors, especially retail investors that don't really know what they're doing, they're trying to just buy companies when they're low, he thinks they're going to get completely wiped out with these smaller oil companies. We've seen that happen a little bit, but the ones that don't have the balance sheet to outlast this, his opinion is that they're going to have a rough time. I agree with him on that. Now, he does also bring up something else that I think is very interesting. He believes that this dispute between the Saudis and the Russians is not coincidental. 
I mean, guys, it's so easy to see what's happening here, and it needs to be talked about more by people like you. We're having the largest economic crisis from a, from a uh, percentage of GDP's perspective, maybe that the world's ever had collectively all at once. And that just so happens to be the exact time that Saudi and Russia decide to, quote, have a dispute over OPEC production cuts and the fact that the U.S. shale business has gone from producing, you know, five, six million barrels a day to 11 million barrels a day. The U.S. was actually energy independent. And that changes the politics of how we interact with the Middle East and Russia dramatically. And the Middle East and Russia don't like that. So what does MBS, what does MPS and Putin do? They actually declared war on our shale business. Now, when I hear this, uh, I tend to agree. I think it's unlikely in my mind that we would have this huge of an oil crisis at the exact time that we're going through this big pandemic. Just the timing of it seems a little bit unlikely. Maybe it is coincidental, but I, I think there could be extra motives to applying this much pressure to oil while our economy is already struggling, especially from people that are economic foes to us. We have Russia that, do I think they're capable of doing this using the production of oil to harm U.S. American oil companies? Absolutely. I think that's something entirely possible and even likely. So what does this mean? Uh, It means that this could go on for a very long time. If that's the case, if Russia wants to harm U.S. oil companies, they could overproduce oil, continue to be disruptive with the Saudis, and make this cause havoc for our oil companies until a lot of the smaller ones go out of business. So my plan with that is to continue to hold ExxonMobil and Chevron I think they'd be the last to suffer from this. They'd be the last to have real issues with it. There's a lot of other oil companies that do not have nearly the balance sheet as them that I think will suffer a lot more in the meantime, especially if the price war does drag on for a lot longer. So I would be cautious if you own a lot smaller companies. Okay, let's get to some questions and emails. The email address is joseph at josephcarlsonshow.com. I also have my Twitter, Instagram. You can leave comments. I check all of those as well. The first one is from Conscious Crypto. He says, a key difference between rental property income and dividend income is that rental property comes with annual leases and contractual payments. A dividend can be suspended at any time. Estee Lauder, how much makeup will women be buying while they stay at home? You think that dividend is going to continue? He actually, uh, when he wrote this comment, Estee Lauder had already cut its dividend or they suspended their dividend. So, Uh, They've already done that. So point well taken there. It matters to think about market fundamentals because if you see in advance that a dividend will be cut, it is in your best interest to sell the underlying stock before the price tanks, even if you mostly don't care about the price. If you're going to have to sell it eventually, doing so uh, before you wipe out all your dividend gains due to depreciation of asset has got to matter. Additionally, dividends are a percentage payment, not flat amounts. So if the stock loses value, then even if the dividend yield percent remains constant, the actual income will decrease. Meanwhile, you could be earning 8.6% on USD-backed stable coins with much less risk, some risk always because you have a third-party risk, plus USD being devalued by craziness of the Fed and Treasury, but not as much risk as stocks at a time of such massive economic contraction as will occur over the next year. I really think the best advice right now is to sit on cash and wait for more clarity. Okay, Conscious Crypto, I... Thought your comment was interesting. There's a couple things I want to go through. So I'll just go top to bottom through this. You say a key difference between rental property income and dividend income is that rental property comes with annual leases and contractual payments. A dividend can be suspended at any time. Um, Did you not hear the news? There was a Wall Street Journal article that said one third of renters did not pay rent. 
one-third. Rent doesn't need to be paid either. Those contractual obligations mean nothing if people don't want to pay rent. They can decide not to pay it. I have lived in a family that's owned rentals, and if renters don't want to pay their rent, there's not much you can do. You can bring them to small claims court. You can try to go through that. It's expensive. It's costly. Most of the time, it's not worth it. Those contracts don't mean a whole lot. It's just a way of you to to try to put pressure on people to get them out of the apartment if they don't pay. But people don't need to pay rent if they don't want to. We have to put in policies to try to mitigate losses from people that don't pay rent. One of them is like collecting your first month's rent and your last month's rent at the same time. You might think that that's really annoying as a tenant that you have to pay last month's rent right when you enter into the apartment. But the reason why is because so many people leave the apartment one month early or two weeks early and they don't pay their last month's rent. That happens all the time. So landlords are demanding more money up front continually. They want up front the first month's rent, the last month's rent. And a lot of times they'll also want a big security deposit. And the reason landlords do that is to protect them and mitigate from losses because people don't care about the leases or the contracts. They don't really mean a lot when people want to do what they want to do. And a lot of times they aren't enforced because it's just too much work. If somebody leaves and moves away without paying a month's rent, what do you do? You can try to track them down, hurt their credit. There's not too much recourse for that. Most of the time, it's better to just get somebody new in. So the reason that I compare rental income properties to dividend stocks is because I think it's a very good comparison. People have tried to say, that there's differences between the two. That's right. They're not identical. I realize that there are differences between the two, but I think on a comparative level, there's a lot of things that are very comparable between the two. The dividend that you get paid is based off the net income of the the asset that you own. You have a company, it's productive, it makes profits. Some of those profits, they pay back to shareholders in the form of dividends. Just like you have a rental property, that rental property has somebody in it that is productive. They go out, they do a job, they produce something, they come back with money because they're productive and they pay you a percentage of their productivity. That's rent. Both of them are assets that asset can go up and down in value. A rental property can go up and down in value. A dividend stock can go up and down in value. But the goal is that they continually pay you money at the same time, that they have something where they're making profits and they're paying their shareholders money at the same time. I think it's a very simple way of looking at those two investments, and I think that it's a very good comparison. Now, I can even extend this analogy to the example you bring up, Estee Lauder. They suspended their dividend because their stores are closed and their revenue is really low right now. All the outlets that sell them uh, are, are pretty much closed. So they're saying they don't want to pay their dividend right now because they want to protect their business. They need to keep their employees. They need to keep their balance sheet okay so that they can make it through this. And then when they resume business, presumably they'll reinstate their dividend. Now look at a renter. Sure. They have contractual agreements. They got to pay their rent, right? What do you think a family is going to choose given the choice between putting food on the table or paying their landlord rent? What do you think they're going to choose? Of course, they're not going to pay rent. If they don't have the money to, they're not going to pay rent. It doesn't matter. They will prioritize other things. That's part of the reason why these mortgage companies are hurting so bad right now is a lot of people are deferring their rent payments. They're saying, we don't have money. We're not going to pay it right now. They're still eating. They're still alive. They're going to take care of their needs. They're going to have health care and other things before they pay their rent. So the whole leases and contractual obligations don't really mean anything in that situation. Now, the other thing I wanted to highlight out of this comment is you say additionally dividends are percentage payments, not flat amounts. I see this all the time. That's not really true. Dividends are an amount per share being paid in dividends, in cash to you, an amount per share. A company will say we're paying a $1 dividend, meaning $1 per share per year. 
Now, the yield is something that does change all the time because the yield is the relationship between that set amount, the dividend payment, to the current stock price. And the current stock price fluctuates every single day. So that changes the dividend yield. The dividend yield would go up and down as the price of the share goes up and down. But unless the company announces that they're cutting the dividend or they're raising it, you're still going to get that dollar per share. So usually the dividend payment is a set amount. The dividend yield, the calculation, is something that changes all the time. True Game says, do your parents that have way too many apartments help you financially? Do you go through this investment strategy with the peace of mind, knowing you have a massive lottery size payout coming in your parents' will? Um, Yeah, so I think this is a fair question. I mentioned in my previous episode that my parents at one time owned seven apartments. Right now they own three, so they sold out a couple of those. My dad didn't want to manage that many apartments. Three of them was enough to have the amount of cash flow. So he sold out of some of those apartments and bought a nice home paid off in cash. So that was the situation there. Your first question is, do my parents help me financially? That's a multifaceted question there. Do they help me financially? Yes. They help me financially a tremendous amount. Do they give me money? No. I have not received any money from my parents since at least 10 years, maybe when I was in high school to help pay for some things there. But no, my entire adult life Um, has not been one where I've received financial aid from my parents. So uh, I don't know of any instance that I've asked for money or I've received money from my my parents. Um, But they do help me financially with growing up, understanding finance, at least understanding the basic concepts of growing wealth, uh, avoiding the big traps that a lot of people find themselves in, having huge amounts of debt, credit card debt, large amounts of school debt for things that aren't too lucrative. So yes, they help out financially, but they don't give me money. That's been the relationship so far. I think if I really had to be in a situation where I had to have help, if they were going to help me, I think they absolutely would. So if I went to them and said, I have to have some money right now, normally I wouldn't ask. I'm sure they would help, but they would expect it to be paid back. So that's the type of relationship that I have. The other question you ask, do you go through this investment strategy with the peace of mind, knowing you have a massive lottery size payout coming your way in your parents' will? I don't think so. A couple of reasons why. One of them I think is important is, I'm not a single child, so not all of their inheritance is going to go to me. Uh, There's two older brothers, two older sisters. It'll be split five ways. I don't think that that would be enough in and of itself to really be super comfortable. Even beyond that, and I think more importantly, I think it is a terrible idea to rely on potential inheritance for your investing strategy. That's a completely silly thing to do. The money that I am investing, I've worked very hard for. I care about the money. I want it to grow. I want wealth to grow. I'm not being willy-nilly with it, playing around with it, because I have an undisclosed amount from my parents in an undisclosed amount of time. There's a lot of variables that can happen with that, so it's not something I rely on. I think it's a a really bad strategy to rely on other extraneous factors that might happen in the future for your retirement. So um, if you're relying on inheritance, I don't think that's a good strategy. If you're relying on Social Security and Medicare, I don't think that's a good strategy. It's like not having a savings account because if you lose your job, you can get unemployment. I just really think that that's not a smart financial thing to do and not a good attitude. So no, I try not to focus on inheritance, Social Security, other things that could potentially help you financially. I really want to be financially independent without having to ask anybody for money or relying on any external source. That's what financial independence is. That's what the goal of my passive income stream is, is to gain financial independence. So uh, hopefully I'm not in a situation where I'm really hoping that my parents' will works out or that I'm hoping that social security saves me. I want to be in a good financial situation regardless. 
Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and leave this episode there. If you guys want to chat on Discord, check the link in the description. It's fun to talk to different investors there. Uh, Otherwise, I will check in with you next time.